How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome singing, right? You guys are praised up and ready to go. We're kicking off the When in Romans series today, and we're going to get pretty far. I mean, we're going to get through seven verses. Seven verses, guys. Um, as you could tell, though, maybe when you came in, that it doesn't, it takes a while. Um, because I think I went till like 9.41, and they're supposed to be done at 9.30. So I'll try not to keep you guys as long, but there's a lot here. And I want us to be diligent in our study because we are going through a very weighty book like I talked about last week, and I want to make sure that we're giving its due diligence. Before we get started, let's just go to the Father in prayer just to get focused and ready. Dear Lord, we uh, thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the freedom we have to worship. Lord, we thank you for the breath that you've breathed into us, God, for the fact that we woke up this morning, that we arrived here safely, Lord, and we pray that in this time that we direct our thoughts toward the apostles' teachings, that we would be diligent, um, that you would open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to hear from you. And Lord, that this wouldn't just be an intellectual activity, Lord, but that we would be transformed by your truth. And that we would be challenged by Paul and that we would grow to look more like Jesus. Lord, help me to move out of the way so you can Spirit can speak through me, Lord, and give me the endurance I need to finish. We praise you, Lord, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I say that because, I don't know how many of you guys have ever preached before, but preaching two sermons is a lot. Because you give everything you got during the first one, and your body breaks down. I mean, it's like, it's a workout. Every day when I leave after preaching, I've hit most of my active calories. And that's like at 700, so it's not low, you know. Preaching takes a lot out of you. So when you think about that, you always have to rely on God's strength over yours because you give everything you got each time. And that's how we do things with God, right? We give everything we got. And God picks up the slack because God has an infinite amount of energy, right? (laughs) Wisdom, grace, love. So this morning we're going to be looking at Romans 1, 1 through 7. And I want to just get a, a quick overview of the book we talked about last week. So, Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, who had the unique status of being both an Israelite and a Roman citizen, wrote this letter. Okay? It was written about 56 AD in Corinth and taken by Phoebe to Rome. And Paul wrote it so that he could help establish in you, meaning the Roman church, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So, Paul wrote it so that he could establish in the Roman church his gospel. Because remember, he didn't find or found the church. And the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to Romans 16.25a. So this week, as we look at the beginning of this, remember, that's who wrote it. That's when it was written, so it was pretty close to the ascension. And why it was written was for the sake of the gospel, which we're going to see again this morning. So we start in verse 1. Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. So why does a letter start with the signature line? Right? When we write letters, we don't sign it at the top. But Paul does. Why? Simple answer. It was a parchment scroll. So could you imagine having to read through all the way through Romans before you found out who wrote it? Well, we're going to read this entire letter from... Paul, but we don't know who wrote it. We don't know that it was Paul. 
So at the very beginning, Paul will set out to say, who wrote it? Is this is his signature? This sentence right here is a signature. So like when I sign something, if, I, if I'm feeling fancy, I'll put Chris Carino or Christopher. It sounds very much more official, right? And then I could put MS, LPC, MMIN, um, you know, National Board Certified, NBCC. I could put all these letters after my name, right, if I wanted to. And sometimes I do because I feel like it, right? Let's just be honest. I spent a lot of money and a lot of time to get those letters. But for Paul, he's signing it up front. And Paul signing up front tells us four things about Paul, which is crazy. I realized first service, this, this verse could be the sermon, so I'll try not to make it the sermon in its entirety. But four things. So the first thing is his name. As we talked a little bit about last week, not everybody was here. So, um, but Saul had chosen to shed his name in favor of Paul by this time. Why is that distinctive? Because Saul was the name of the first king of Israel. had prestige. As a young Pharisee, it would have served him really well. He's identifying with the first king of Israel as a Pharisee, moving up in the ranks. But when God sidetracks him on the road to Damascus, we shortly after that see him start to identify more with his other name, Paul, which means little. And this Paul easily could have identified himself to the Romans as Saul of Tarsus, this Roman citizen, but he doesn't. He says Paul. He doesn't say anything about his citizenship, in fact. He's not trying to relate to them on the basis of shared citizenship, but he's the only apostle that has that. Instead, he identifies himself as Paul, which tells us that by the time he's writing this letter, he's choosing to convey this this precious message with the name Paul. And I think that's important. Because when God calls you, you change. And I think that Saul has now fully embraced being Paul. And I think for some of us, we struggle with that. You know, you could preach on this, right? The idea that God changed his name. He's no longer Saul of Tarsus. He's Paul, the apostle. Next thing he identifies with is his status. What's his status? By saying his status first, he's establishing an order to who he is. First, he's little, Paul. And then he's a bondservant or bondslave. The word here in the Greek is doulos. And it's usually translated servant, bondservant, bondslave, depending on what translation. But identifying as a doulos would tell the readers three important things in the first century. The first is that a bondservant or a bondslave of Christ, by saying that Paul is establishing the premise in which he was entitled to be heard by the Roman church. See, in ancient times, the honor and dignity of a slave owner were inherent in his slave, and mistreatment and disrespect of that slave was legally seen as mistreatment of the owner. We don't think about that. But when Paul's speaking as a bondservant, he's saying, you owe me the same respect and honor when I speak that you owe Jesus. And you're claiming to be Christians because I'm his slave. I'm speaking on his behalf. He owns me. I'm owned by Christ. So Paul's letting them know that he's speaking as Christ's slaves and therefore has the authority and respect owed to Jesus to be received. We see the same goes for us, though, right? If you think about it, 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul writes this, Therefore we are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, and we implore you then on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What is an ambassador? 
Somebody who has the same authority to speak on behalf of whoever has sent them, whether that's a king or a president. An ambassador is to be treated with the same dignity and respect. Go in any foreign country, and that embassy where the ambassador is at is not is protected by the country of origin. So if you attack a U.S. ambassador and a U.S. embassy in another country, that's grounds for war, right? That's as if you attack the United States and the president himself. So we know that for us, it's no different. Those of us who are in Christ belong to Jesus. And when we speak, we speak with authority based on what God has delegated to us through Jesus Christ. Amen? We don't have to be shy in our culture. I think that we've become such politically correct people, we forget that we have the authority and the responsibility, which is what Paul's going to tell us, to speak on Christ's behalf. So second, we know that by using doulos, or bond servant, Paul is stating that in conscience, doctrine, and conduct, his life in every way is subject to Jesus Christ. In conscience. What do we know about what it says in Peter about baptism? It says that when we are baptized, we're making a pledge of what? Good conscience towards God. So what it says in Peter, read it. When it's talking about the flood saving eight people, and now that water symbolizes baptism, which now saves us, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. So in conscience, we're beholden to Jesus. He says, in doctrine, what are we teaching? Are we teaching sound doctrine? Doctrine was big, right? They talk a lot. Guard your doctrine, Right? And then you even have this whole role of overseer or shepherd. And one of their primary roles in the church is to guard from the ravenous wolves of false doctrine. Because there's a lot of false prophets, a lot of false teachers. Doctrine's important. And then conduct says what? As much as it is possible to you, live at peace with one another. You should make this your ambition to live a quiet life. Right? There's, and I could go on right, with conduct verses. Right, You can read the book of James, which we went through. But these three things that were true about Paul are also true about us. Our conscience, our doctrine, and our conduct are in every way subject to Jesus Christ. Which means what? We don't get to choose. That's what Paul's saying here. I'm little, I'm Paul, but next I'm a bond slave. You should listen to me because I represent Jesus and you owe me that same honor and dignity. Not because of who I am, but because of who I'm associated with. Because I have an accountability back to him to live and to think and to teach in a manner worthy of him. And the third thing we learned from this is, as James Burton Kaufman says in his 1973 commentary on Romans, says, due to the frequent use of the word doulos in conjunction with the word apostle, it implies an official capacity in the person designated. Therefore, Paul was not claiming by the use of this word merely that he was living the Christian life, but as a bond slave of Christ, he had a message from God that all men are obligated to heed. You know that's true, right? God is going to hold accountable the entire creation for whether or not they heed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are obligated. I love that word, obligated. The world is obligated to accept the gospel. And if they don't, there's going to be judgment. And so we have to be bold enough, as Paul is bold, to say that gospel message to other people. So you start with Paul, you find out his name, you find out his status, but now you're finding out his official title. 
called an apostle. Some of you might say called to be an apostle in your translation, or called um, as an apostle. But the idea here is if you look it up in the Greek, the words to be are fillers. They're not in the text. And I think this is important because a lot of times if we're going to do this kind of teaching out of a book, we need to really look at what it's teaching from the beginning so we don't veer off. You know, one step in the wrong direction can lead us very far by the time we get to chapter 16. He's not called to be an apostle. That's not what it says in the Greek. It says Paul called an apostle. And so this idea of to be has the connotation that leads you to believe that this is some future goal that Paul was striving toward. As if Paul's not yet arrived at this goal of apostleship, which is not true. Now, Paul hasn't become perfect. He'll say that, right? Not that I've attained perfection, but this is what I do. I don't look behind, but I strive forward, trying to attain that. He's not talking about that. His apostleship is determined by the calling of Jesus Christ in the moment of the call. James Burton puts it this way. Paul was not telling them that he was called to be, but that he was an apostle. And this is powerful because it fits into the broader scope of the gospel and New Testament theology. When you really think about who we are and what God has called us by faith, not by works to be. See, Paul's not striving to become something that he's not. Paul is beginning to accept who he is in Christ Jesus. And that's a very different approach to your faith. One is called legalism and self-righteousness, which the Pharisees were in trouble for. And the other one was, I'm going to, by, by the humility caused by the cross, accept that God has called me to this position. And it is a, an official position. There's only 14 apostles that have ever lived, right? And the only reason there's 14 is because Judas betrayed and they had to replace him. But Paul is the very last one called, right? We know Paul is the only one called post-resurrection. And this was a fight his whole ministry. Because even if you read in Acts, Luke is trying to lay out the validation for his apostolic ministry. Because to be an apostle wasn't to be a disciple only. It was a unique role that only a few had. And they had to be called directly by Jesus in order to be that person. So what's his purpose? He gives us his purpose at the end. Paul finishes by saying, having been set apart for the gospel of God. So he finishes the sentence with that. God has set him apart. And to be set apart, we know another word for set apart is what? It's okay to talk. Holy, right? So God has made him holy. God has made Paul holy. And what has he made him holy for? The gospel. And so we know that Paul himself was not the one that made himself holy because it says having been set apart or and being set apart, meaning someone else must have done the setting apart. So it wasn't like Paul earned himself into holiness, right? God plucked him out of this place and put him in this place so that he would be set apart or holy. This God is the one who called Saul on the way to Damascus, the one who commanded him to go see Ananias, the same God that said this about Paul in Acts 9, 15 through 16. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's the God that called Paul. 
God set him apart or made him holy for the gospel of God. And this gospel is the good news of the kingdom that has come, right? The truth of the mystery that was hidden before revealed in the coming of the Messiah. This means that the gospel itself must have been so important for God to have done all this to Paul. You know, think about it. It's like this. If God had taken Hitler and blinded him on the way. I mean, they're doing the same thing. Maybe not in the same scope. But they're both killing Jews. They're both persecuting Jews, God's people. And God says, I'm going to take this guy and I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for the sake. And Paul starts his letter to the Romans saying, I'm Paul, not Saul. I'm a bondservant called an apostle, set set apart for the glory of God. And it comes back to that, right? And I want you guys to hear this today because you're going to hear it again. The Bible over and over and over and over and over and over to infinity again sets up this idea that it's about God, not about us. But I want to tell you, I've heard a lot of preachers, I've heard a lot of teachers, I've sat in a lot of Bible studies where people make the mistake of interpreting the Bible from the perspective that it's about humanity when it's not. We, re- we misinterpret for God to so love the world. Look it up. The world, the world means is cosmos. It has, it's not just humanity. It's the world. It's everything God's created. The word cosmos means the systemic and orderly system of things that have been created. It's bigger than man, but what do we use that for? Well, God loved us. Okay, but he loves everything else too. He looked at everything and said it was good. He didn't just look at us and say that. So we make a very man-centered Bible interpretation. We make the gospel about us. And it's no wonder people fall away from God because they've never gotten to know God. From the very beginning of this letter, he finishes the first sentence being set apart for the gospel of God. The only reason all this is happening in my life, the only reason I'm writing this at the end of the book is for the gospel of God. And the gospel is so big because Jesus himself says, Unless you believe in me and in the gospel, in the same sentence, Jesus equates himself and the gospel as one thing of import. And that's huge for the church. And I feel like we've lost that. I mean, if you're being honest, you don't have to raise your hand. When's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? And I, can, and I even mean the generic gospel, like Jesus died and rose. I don't mean in the context of somebody's life, like, This person's having a hard time in their marriage, and you're like, man, you keep complaining about your wife not wanting to be around you, but you're kind of a jerk. And, you know, that's okay because sin causes dissension in a marriage, and because sin came in the world, there's enmity between a husband and wife. And we knew there was going to be trouble, but God made this way through Jesus that was going to redeem, and Jesus died and took the punishment for all the things you've done wrong in that relationship and all the things she's done wrong in that relationship, put them on the cross so you can be reconciled, not only with God, but with each other. That's the non-generic gospel. But even the generic gospel, if you're being honest, when's the last time you shared that with somebody? And it's not even complex. But do you really care? Because I guarantee you, if, if you were having a grandchild, I would know about it. So would Facebook. If your favorite team won a sporting event, I would know about it. So would Facebook. But you were saved by the mercy of God through the shedding of blood of the only holy person that's ever lived? And for what? Nothing you deserve, but because he decided to do it for his glory and nobody knows about it? And that's sad. And we got to do better. We're all guilty of that. We are all guilty. 
We can't say Paul. When you think of the word Paul, you think of Jesus. But when somebody thinks of your name, do they think of Jesus? That's the question. And if they don't, then are, re- are you really a bond servant? Are you really who God has called you to be if your name is not synonymous with Jesus? That's what we're being challenged with this morning, just from the first verse. So let's move on. Romans 2, 1, 2 through 3. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So Paul continues on here, asserting the fact that the, continue, the gospel was a continuation of the fulfillment of what had been proclaimed and partially unpacked in the Old Testament. Why is this important? Because there's no way to separate the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament from the promises and the covenant work being accomplished through the Old Testament. And that happens all the time. i got to tell you, in our culture, this is huge. A simpler way to say that is this. The Old Testament is essential for understanding both context and confirmation of the truth and the authenticity of the gospel. The gospel means nothing without the old. Jesus only taught the Old Testament. Now, did he redefine some of the things they misunderstood? Sure. But everything they refer to as scripture in the New Testament is not what they're writing. They don't consider what they're writing to be scripture. We do. And I think rightly so. But they weren't talking about the gospels or the letters in the New Testament when they used the word scripture. What were they talking about? The Old Testament. And in our culture, it's really easy to say, if we take the Old Testament away, whatever we want the Bible to say. I hear so many argues, arguments that we're going to talk about in two weeks. Dave Embry gets the blessing of talking about God's wrath. We're going to talk about things like homosexuality. And if you throw out the Old Testament and you just say, well, Paul's just got beef with homosexual people. And he's just saying this to this group because this is what was happening in Rome or in Corinth. Yeah, but what about in the beginning when God created Adam and Eve? Well, you know, that's the Old Testament. We don't need that. But, you know, context isn't just within the, the chapter, isn't just within the book, what we would call a book. It's within the 66 books of the scripture that something has to fit into context. And this is what Paul's saying, which he promised beforehand through the scriptures. We would not be able to verify who Jesus was or that he was the Messiah or that the new covenant had come outside of the Old Testament. You guys understand that today? And we have to hold tight to that belief because women's role is the same thing. You want to fight over women's role without the Old Testament? It's going to be a lot tougher. In fact, Paul won't fight over women's role without the Old Testament because they say, haven't you heard in the beginning, God created them both man and woman and he made man head of woman? Well, you could throw out that. Well, Paul was a misogynist. I mean, he grew up in the first century with a Jewish culture that was oppressing women. Okay, we'll give them that. They did oppress women. But where do you think the sentiment came from? Where do you think Jewish culture got its roots in? The scripture. This idea of headship wasn't something they just thought of. It was something that God taught. Now, did they take it far and did they do the wrong thing? Sure, because man is sinful and power can corrupt. But that doesn't mean that what Paul's saying in the New Testament isn't relevant to now. Because if we do that, we can throw out the whole Bible. So he's saying... The Old Testament is important. In fact, it's essential. You cannot go through the Bible without having that. If you look at what Paul teaches a lot of times, he's teaching 
stories out of the Old Testament in a philosophical way. You can find a story that happens in Genesis that has the same exact idea that Paul will assert in a philosophical way. And so the idea here is that the Old Testament confirms the validity of the new. And it was a promise. And not only that, but it begins, it finishes this statement by saying, according to the flesh. Right? So this idea that Jesus' ancestry as it pertains to David's throne, according to the flesh, is a fulfillment of God's promise and a prophecy. So Jesus was fully what? Man. You see, at the very beginning of this letter, he's going to assert the duality of God. He is the God-man, both fully God and fully man. He starts right here in verse 3, according to the flesh. So Jesus becomes man and makes his dwelling among us, Emmanuel. Why is this important? Because in Romans 1, 4, it says, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So in verse 3, we see him as fully man, but in verse 4, we see him as fully what? God. And how do we know that? Because it says this, this word here, it says, with power or in power. So this is exciting because this idea of fulfilling the promise to David was what? A descendant, your seed, will sit on the throne forever. Well, only Jesus could sit on the throne forever. Right? No man was going to sit on the throne forever, but he had to be tied in the flesh to David to fulfill the promise. So we see this God-man come onto the scene. And how do we know Jesus is the, is the Son of God or God the Son? How do we know he's fully God? It says, with power by the resurrection from the dead. So that's the first way we can know that Jesus was God. Um, William Greathouse writes this, to be sure from the beginning he, Jesus, was the son of God, but in weakness and loneliness. Now, let's stop before we finish that. When does Jesus become the son of God? You guys know this? You're getting like a Bible lesson to that. Feel bad, but Jesus doesn't become the son of God until his incarnation. In fact, we know from John chapter 1, verse 1, he's the word of God before that. So Jesus becomes the son in his incarnation. When he becomes man, he becomes the son of God. Before that, this is not a title that he holds. Now think about this for a minute. God, who has no flesh, takes on flesh for eternity in his incarnation. And so when he's talking about um, Jesus here being weak in weakness and lowliness, he's talking about the incarnate Christ, Jesus as a man. The divine glory, which formerly was hidden, was manifest after the resurrection. From that hour on, he is the son of God in a new sense. He is the son of God with power or in power. You see, and we know this from Scripture because it, Paul will teach in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that Jesus set aside his power. Right? He says, being in the very nature God, he did not consider equality as God something to be held on to. And therefore, he emptied himself, letting it go, becoming nothing. So we know that when Jesus comes to earth, he doesn't come with his God powers. You know, I know we give him credit for that, but if you look at it, when does he perform the first miracle? Before or after he receives the Holy Spirit? After. He doesn't have the power that he had in the beginning. He set it aside willingly to walk as a man. And we have to remember that Jesus walked by faith, Scripture says, and by the definition of faith, that means he didn't know what was going to happen. He believed what was going to happen. 
Jesus had faith, a faith that we would all envy because he believed. From birth, his mom told him, you're the Messiah. The shepherds would have told him, look, angels came and talked about you. All these people in his life would have said, this is you. And as he begins to read scripture by faith, he learns who he is. And he grows in power, then he gets baptized, and the Holy Spirit comes. And now he has these times where he can like, read people's minds, it seems like. And he's able to do these miracles. But that was a result of the Holy Spirit, not the result of his own power, because he set it aside. In fact, how do we know this? Jesus himself prays in John 17, 1 through 5, that he would regain the glory that he had set aside. He says this, Father, now it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified with the glory that he had with you in the beginning. Jesus set aside his divinity to become man. And it wasn't until after his resurrection that he was fully back to who he was as God. But that doesn't change who he is because you are who you are, even if you choose to set aside your power. But that's the beauty of our God. He was willing to become one of us fully in order that he could live perfectly by the law so that he might be the right sacrifice for us. And today I think that's so important for us. And that's what Paul is trying to tell us, with power. It's another part of semantics, but if you have the NIV, it'll read, by his resurrection from the dead. So there's a lot of argument about this. Um, The Greek actually reads, by the resurrection from the dead. And so what is this, why is this important? Why am I getting picky here? Because by changing from to of, the statement makes an even grander scale confirmation. It says it's not only just Jesus' resurrection, but also, as John 5.24 says, the resurrection of those who have crossed from death to life. So another way of putting this, a guy, uh, William Greathouse says this, Paul is, actually says that Christ was designated the Son of God but with power by the resurrection of dead ones, meaning through Christ, the resurrection age has burst upon us. So it's not just that Jesus rose from the dead, that's confirmation, but the fact that those of us who are in Christ will rise with him. That shows us he's the son of God, because he's not just going by himself, but in fact, he's bringing others with him. And this verse, how it's written, you can see that after that, it says, according to the spirit of holiness... But in the Greek, it actually reads more like this. Having been declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ is Lord of us. So we flip that because it's easier to read. But in the actual source text, according to the spirit of holiness precedes by the power. Because what power is it? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who ushers in the age of resurrection. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes in and regenerates us. The Holy Spirit is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so when you think about this idea, it's, it's beautiful to see how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all working toward the purpose that God had in the beginning. So the sequence is changed for the ease of translation, but I think you lose a little bit of what it means. It, God's bigger than just Jesus raising it's that we're going to raise too. In fact, what does he say in um, Colossians 1.18? It says it this way. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. So th- if you're the first, there's probably going to be a second and maybe a third, hopefully, right? This idea that Jesus is the predecessor or the one in the beginning, and that's not the totality of it. So... This idea of Jesus being both the origin of grace and the appointer 
of Paul's apostleship is important because Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Amen? Which means that he is the origin of grace in our life. And he has chosen to establish a relationship with us. He has chosen to establish a relationship with us. And I want to hear that this morning. I want us to understand that it was God who chose first to be with us. Not us who chose first to be with God. Because he wanted us, not because of anything we have done or will do. Secondly, is God who calls us into his service. And not us who choose to serve God. God calls us. God called Paul. Paul didn't call God. You guys hearing me? You losing me yet? God called Paul, not the other way around. You didn't call on God. God called you first. And this is important because remember at the beginning, or remember this, it says in Ephesians 1.4, just as he, God, chose, him, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Who chose who? God chose us. We, we get scared of that because we're more Arminian, right? We get scared of that more Calvinistic view of God that says God is sovereign. We have a hard time reconciling predestination and free will. But I will say this, no matter what side you fall on, it says right here that he chose us, that he calls us, that he is the originator of our relationship. He is the one reaching out. Now, I would say I believe we have a response to make. Some people would say we don't get a choice in that. But I will say this. At the beginning, it's always about God. God is the one who reached out from eternity past and stepped into the scene as the God-man, demonstrating long before we were born the fullness of his love for us by dying on the cross. And that's huge. Because that gives me peace to know that God's not looking at what I'm doing to determine whether he loves me because he already showed me he loved me 2,000 years before I was born. At the fullest extent. That means I don't have to perform my way into his good grace. Grace is unmerited favor. So Paul asserts that God provides both of these things, this calling to his service and grace to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. We see this again for the gospel of God, now for his namesake. God is about God. Can I reiterate that enough today? God is all about his glory. God is all about himself. And that's not a bad thing, because if God worshipped anything but himself, he would be an idolater. Because if he's truly God, then there's no vanity in worshipping himself. And I, I don't know how else to put that. I just don't think we get who God is. I don't think we see God as set apart as he really is, as the three times holy God that Isaiah saw that day when he was in the temple. Ephesians 2.10 says this while Paul's expressing the gospel. He finishes by writing this. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do the work that God prepared in advance for us to do. This good work that God prepared is the same work that Paul's describing to the church in Rome. It's merely a rephrasing of the Great Commission. Spreading the gospel and teaching obedience. That's why God gives us grace and calls us to his service. So that we can go do that to others. So in closing, this is how he finishes. Among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints, grace to you and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This concept of being called by God carries so much weight, as we'll see later in Romans 4.17. While describing Abraham, Paul writes this, God who gives life to the dead and calls things that do not exist as existing. Or another way of putting it is, calls into being that which does not exist. This morning, I want you to hear this if you hear nothing else. God is the one calling, and God has the power to call things that don't exist into existence. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and what happened? So you don't think that's true about you? This morning, he calls two things to the church. The church in Rome, which would extend to us today, the beloved of God. Those who God calls in Christ are beloved of God, and we have a special place as the bride of Christ. As the children of God, we are his beloved. Not everybody's a child of God. That's a false doctrine that's taught. But we know, according to John chapter 1, that only those who God allows that to be the case through faith and belief in Jesus Christ are given the right to be called children of God. We know those who are in the body of Christ are the bride of Christ. And I, I know that people don't like this, but God loves the body more than anything else. God loves the bride. And to think otherwise is crazy. Nobody loves somebody more than they love their spouse. Your kids, it's easy to love you made them. Your spouse you chose to be in a relationship with, and it takes work. Nobody can make you feel worse than your spouse And nobody can make you feel higher than your spouse. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus will say it this way. A new command I give you, love one another. As he sits in the upper room after washing the disciples' feet, who's he talking to? The world or the church? Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. God loves the church more than anything. That doesn't diminish his love for everything else, but it does... increase it. We are the beloved of God. I want you to hear that this morning. If you are in Christ Jesus, God calls you his beloved, not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, but because he says so. And what God says happens. And that's the truth this morning. The second thing he calls us as saints. Those of us who have been born again through conversion in the waters of baptism have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the sun. We are no longer sinners. I hate hearing Christians identify as a sinner. That is not scriptural. And if you don't believe me, we can talk after. You are a saint. You have been made new. You were born again. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ, holy, blameless, and without blemish, spot-free. You receive the righteousness of God we talked about a few weeks ago. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, my righteousness. You are not a sinner. Stop saying that. You are a saint. You are a child of God because God says so, and that's all that matters. This morning, if you are in Christ, you're the beloved of God, and you are a saint. You are a bondservant of Jesus Christ with the authority and the expectation to preach the good news to every person you meet, to live in a way that your conduct would reflect back to Jesus, and to have a conscience that's clean before God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Paul sets that out in the first seven verses so they know nothing else that is said is taken outside of that context. This morning, we learned that God can do awesome things, amen? God took Paul, Saul, the Jew killer. He can take any of us. 
And let, and let us not think we're any better than Paul either. Because it's not the deed, but the thought. It's not the deed, but the heart. So this morning, as we get prepared to sing, make me a servant, how will you respond to God's call? Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to just cry out to God in thanksgiving for what he's called you. Or maybe you need to enter into that baptistry this morning by faith through repentance and surrender your life to Christ so that you know for certain you will spend eternity with him. Please stand as we get ready to sing.